O last of Rome, among small-minded citizens, the bickering children of your mother's house, your gaze was calm and grave and kind, as is the glowing lamp upon the holy icon's deep-set brow. From Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz, and you're listening to the After Dinner Scholar, the college's weekly podcast. While this podcast has featured any number of conversations about poems, we have yet had a poem and a poet together. In the latest issue of the college's publication, Integritas, we featured a poem called Ode to Constantine the Eleventh by Professor Adam Cooper. And I began this podcast quoting the first five lines. The poem and its subject require some explanation, but not before we've heard it in its entirety. Ode to Constantine the Eleventh. O last of Rome, among small-minded citizens, the bickering children of your mother's house, your gaze was calm and grave and kind as is the glowing lamp upon the holy icon's deep-set brow. Time and again, the hubbub of your folk grew still beneath the saddened query in your eye, the high and clear command. Mild as a Levite, in dignity not overlord but minister, unbowed by all the majesty on your back, Though draped in Augustus' toga, shouldering Aeneas' shield, bearing the standard cross your namesake bore, son of your mother's namesake, Helen, saint, raising the golden staff Achilles, chidden, gave back to humbled Agamemnon, and Zeus the watcher thundered, glad to see us mortals kiss the rod, that measures out our limit in the dust, all for the last time. Unbowed by all that majesty, you went with warrior grace, the poise of one who does not miss or flinch because he makes his peace with all his own and death. Spite of your railing citizens, you had stooped before the haughty vicarage of Rome a suppliant, and blushing royalty redoubled in your veins. But kings and and chevaliers in England, France, and Spain, though your white cape, your white Arabian charger blazed and flitted in their dreams, ignore the summons of a Caesar pleading, not coercing. Only from Venice, Genoa, free captains of ebullient republics, adventurers of a young and bright and almost alien Europe clasp hands with you, and an Italian Justinian arrives to man your gate. But petty lords of France and England, hurling titles at each other, debase their ancient lines and turn the name of Christian king into a widow's curse. They cannot spare a horse for the queen of starlit cities and her prince, for centuries the bulwark of the West, for Hagia Sophia, court of heaven upon earth. Young man, 
you rose from where you knelt before eternal wisdom's earthly altar, set aside your crown and everything that signified your state, though steady step and penetrating eye still for your mind's anointing spoke. And so, like any citizen, you go against the swords and cannon of your foe to be clothed in your heart's purple for a robe. Before asking you about the poem, uh, tell us about the subject. Who was Constantine the Eleventh? What, what's the history that surrounds this poem? In the fifteenth uh, century, the great city of Constantinople, which had been the capital of the Roman Empire since since the fourth century under under Constantine, that the deeply depleted of its resources was almost an outpost of the West in increasingly Turkish-dominated East. And uh, the, the Sultan Mehmed II had been for years building up his forces, laying his plans to capture this, this jewel, uh, great war prize of the capital of the Roman, the Roman Empire, which symbol of the pride and the glory of Christian Europe. And heir to the throne in direct line of succession from Augustus, um, as well as Constantine and Justinian and Trajan, uh, was Constantine the 11th of that name, um, and finally the last of the Roman Caesars, uh, and he was, perhaps, uh, it was an unenviable uh, office, an unenviable throne uh, to be given, and, but he was the sort of man who was ready for it. He was a, a warrior and a strategist and, and someone who was alive to the great tradition that in a very peculiar and special way, he was called upon to represent and defend. When uh, the siege of Constantinople began, opportunity on opportunity was given to him to flee to some city in, on the Peloponnesus or in Greece somewhere um, and, and hide away. But if, if the great city was going to fall, the king should fall with his city, he thought. And, uh, and so he stayed, stayed to the end in one of the greatest, <laughs> greatest last stands of history. <laughs> Tell us about the poem and begin with why you wrote it. What, what inspired it? I think I had been, was thinking about Roman history and trying to get all the, all the emperors in proper order. And uh, partially because I was reading Virgil and partially because I was reading Dante and Dante tries to draw the line of Roman history into 14th, 15th even century, um, 14th century actually. Um, and of course, so many of our great civilizations today, even the American Republic and the British Empire, not to mention the Holy Roman Empire and the Russian Empire, attempt to see themselves in continuity with 
the great Roman order, Roman project. Um, but I knew there was something special about uh, this Eastern Empire because Constantine the first is such a hinge point of history when all everything that the Roman Empire is carrying its sense of civic responsibility of duty to the world um, of a, a mission to um, to bring people together in a just and potentially good peace as just as possible as good as possible and facing up to the costs of what it takes to do that kind of thing. All of that in Constantine comes together with making the world a place for in which Christianity can flourish. And somehow uh, that inside of that Roman character is born a Christian spirit. And it's just a beautiful combination of this world and this worldly history and uh, the eternal that somehow begins when Constantine the first takes up the standard of Christ and following a dream that says in this symbol, in this, this symbol of the cross, you will conquer. That's the meaning of the Roman empire, full of contradictions and abuses and problems, of course. Um, but it seems like in a figure like Constantine the Eleventh. Um, oh yes, I, so I was trying to put all these things together, and I and I came to the end of the line, and there was another Constantine, Constantine the Eleventh, and so I found an old uh, early twentieth century or late nineteenth century book by a, a Serbian diplomat that tells the story of the fall of Constantinople and Constantine, really beautiful, beautifully, and I hadn't remembered being moved by epic battle scenes in that way since I was reading about Aragorn in Minas Tirith as a, as a boy <laughs> or reading the Iliad for the first time. So it, my mind was full of just all of what seemed to be implied in this, uh, this fall of the last king. And well, I sat down and wrote a poem. Well, and hence Augustus Toga and, and Aeneas's shield. Um, and uh, the golden staff of Achilles. How does, how does that fit in? Of course, uh, in book two of the Iliad, right after Agamemnon has insulted his best and most beautiful warrior Achilles, he steps forward carrying the golden scepter of his fathers. And it traces the lineage of that scepter all the way back to when Hephaestus made it for Zeus and Zeus gave it to the father of Pelops, the father of the house of Atreus, and it comes down through the generations to Agamemnon. And so he is holding the authority of kingship. But in book one of the Iliad, when Achilles is berating Agamemnon for not behaving like a king. True king honors all who give themselves totally for the common project over which he is the administer and insulting him. Achilles says, you've insulted your own authority. And so he throws the scepter in the ground and calls the curse of Zeus on the Achaean host. So in this moment here that I refer to in the poem where 
uh, have Constantine raising the golden staff, Achilles, Chidden, gave back to humbled Agamemnon, looks at the moment in which Achilles and Agamemnon both have to recognize each other's just claims and each other's authority in some sense. Achilles has destroyed him, come, come close to the point of destroying himself and attempting to assert his rights over Agamemnon. And Agamemnon has certainly come close to destroying himself and all his host in trying to assert his rights tyrannically over Achilles. Um, and so something here about in the face of ultimate necessities, the king recognizing that to be a true king is to honor and make peace with all his own. And the true warrior who is ready to give his life finds the, the glory of his life in acting at the side of his king and not against him. And certainly Constantine the Eleventh had more than his problems yeah. uh, with uh, squabbling factions uh, in, right. in the city under siege. That's right. People desperate in the face of destruction and death, but fleeing um, or even turning to swell the Turkish ranks against him. Uh, the man who built the giant guns that battered through the walls of Constantinople was actually a European who had first offered his services to, to Constantine, uh, and Constantine had no money. And so instead he, he sold his services to the Turk and hence the great walls were breached. But perhaps the biggest squabble, certainly the biggest squabble, had to do with the relationship between the Eastern Rome and the Western Rome. And in the Council of Florence, shortly before the, the siege of Constantinople, the Roman Emperor Constantine had agreed to submit the Eastern churches to the Pope of Rome in, in the hopes that out of the West would come a crusade to defend Constantinople against, against the Turkish threat. It, and so this was the pride of the Greek Orthodox Church, um, the pride of Eastern distinction from, from Western Rome. The Great Schism was, was all the way back in 1054. So a lot, had, a, lot had, a lot of water had gone over the dam. Um, or a lot, a lot of mud had come along and clogged up the dam. A lot of blood, too. Horrible insults on the Roman side to the, to the Greeks. For what, which crusade was it where the Venetian crusaders were diverted from their goal in the Holy Land and just decided to loot and burn in Constantinople? So Constantine XI's uh, chief war, warlord, his chief general, famously said, I'd prefer to see the sultan uh, in, in Constantinople than the, than the Pope of Rome. Um, but Constantine actually, for a moment of just three or four years, healed, healed the Great Schism in the hopes of defending the unified Europe that carrying Aeneas' shield and Augustus' toga was his, was his to defend. As there is a legend about Arthur, the once and future king of England, so there is a legend about Constantine the Eleventh. 
The legend tells us that he did not wear his heart's purple fur robe, but just before he was killed, an angel turned him into marble and hid him beneath the golden gate of Constantinople to await the day when he will be restored to life and kingship and retake his city and the Byzantine Empire. That element of hope in the triumph of Christianity seems to me to be irresistible. The issue of Integritas with Adam Cooper's poem is available at the college's website, wyomingcatholic.edu slash support slash Integritas. That's wyomingcatholic.edu slash support slash Integritas. That page will also allow you to sign up to receive future issues of Integritas in the mail. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.